The scripture reading today comes from Acts chapter 8, verse 26 through 40. An angel from the Lord spoke to Philip, At noon, take the road that leads from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he did. Meanwhile, an Ethiopian man was on his way home from Jerusalem, where he had come to worship. He was a eunuch and an official responsible for the entire treasury of Candace. Candace is the title given to the Ethiopian queen. He was reading the prophet Isaiah while sitting in his carriage. The spirit told Philip, approach this carriage and stay with it. Running up to the carriage, Philip heard the man reading the prophet Isaiah. He asked, do you really understand what you are reading? The man replied, without someone to guide me, how could I? Then he invited Philip to climb up and sit with him. This was the passage of scripture he was reading. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he didn't open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was taken away from him. Who can tell the story of his descendants because his life was taken from the earth? The eunuch asked Philip, tell me about whom does the prophet say this? Is he talking about himself or someone else? Starting with that passage, Philip proclaimed the good news about Jesus to him. As they went down the road, they came to some water. The eunuch said, look, water. What would keep me from being baptized? He ordered that the carriage halt. Both Philip and the eunuch went down to the water where Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Lord's spirit suddenly took Philip away. The eunuch never saw him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip found himself in Azotus. He traveled through that area, preaching the good news in all the cities until he reached Caesarea. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Emily and Josh. I would invite you uh, to put something uh, in Acts chapter 8, the passage that you just heard read for us. But then also go with me today to the gospel text, which is from the gospel of John, the 15th chapter. John chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. And as you turn there, if you're able, I'd invite you to stand with me in honor of the Lord's word. I am the true vine, Jesus says, and my father is the vineyard keeper. He removes any of my branches that don't produce fruit, and he trims any branch that produces fruit so that it will produce even more fruit. You are already trimmed because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. A branch can't produce fruit by itself but must remain in the vine. Likewise, you can't produce fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, then you will produce much fruit. Without me, you can't do anything. If you don't remain in me, you will be like a branch that is thrown out and dries up. Those branches are gathered up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, Ask for whatever you want, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified when you produce much fruit, and in this way prove that you are my disciples. Again, the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Be seated. So my favorite part of uh, getting to preach on a regular basis is the joy of discovery in texts each week. Um, and you've been with me long enough now, you know that I kind of delight in finding a kind of way of reading the text that maybe is a little different than we've heard it before, or finding that place in the text that's kind of a discovery. It's part of the reason I like preaching out of the Old Testament quite a bit, because it's sometimes unfamiliar stuff to us, and, and I can say new stuff. It's kind of fun, 
This text is hard. Um, in fact, one of the commentaries this week on the John text said, um, Preacher, your challenge this week is going to be <laughs> that the text says everything you need to say. Um, it is so clear that perhaps, and this is my addition, perhaps I should just read the text, we'll take communion and go home. Um, and so this morning, I'm thinking not so much about discoveries out of the John text, but, but perhaps affirmations that we come to. Things that Jesus says really clearly in this text. Um, things that we come today, and part of the reason we're here today is because we, we affirm them deeply. There is some cool parts of the text. Last week, uh, we had a John text also, and if you'll remember, it was an I am text. I am the good shepherd, and I talked about how, in part, to understand that text, you have to understand Exodus chapter 3, the I am, when God says, I am that I am, and so Jesus is saying, I am, and there's some connection there. Also, I am the good shepherd is connected to Ezekiel, the 34th chapter, which is a chapter about the good shepherd, and Jesus is coming and proclaiming, I am the good shepherd, I am this fulfillment of Ezekiel 34. In this statement, Jesus is probably making reference to Isaiah, the fifth chapter, which you should write down and read sometime this week, about a kind of song of the vineyard, about how God sings about how Israel is his vineyard, and he has cared for it, and he expected it to bear good fruit, but it didn't bear good fruit, and some of the language in the text shows up in Isaiah chapter 5. And here's Jesus again saying, I am the vine, right? I am that vine. You are that branch. We are the vineyard together. But this morning I want to think about kind of three affirmations out of the John text. And then we're going to go to Acts text and make a discovery and affirm something. And that may be the new thing. But this morning as we think about what is it that we affirm out of this text, let me suggest three or four things. First, we were created for connection with God and with each other. We were created not to be, as our culture tries to often shape us, we were not created to be isolated individuals. We were created, as St. Augustine said, we were created, um, our hearts are restless until they rest in God. That we were created to be connected to the creator. We were created to be connected to each other. Um, we've sensed that this year, probably, in much of our isolation and sense of having to be distanced from each other, we've, we've sensed anew, oh man, we were not created to be alone. We were created to be connected to each other. And part of the reason we're here, either online or present, is because we recognize we have got to be connected to God. And we've got to find ways, not just on Sundays, but daily, that we find ourselves connected to God. I had to preach this text a few years ago. Um, to a group of teenagers, um, it was when I was still cool and got invited to do those things. Uh, it's been a while. But um, I was trying to think, how do I take, uh, in this case, a group of millennials, but if it was today, a group of millennials or Gen Z, how do I take a text like, I am the vine, you are the branches, and make that kind of relevant to them? And so I have to say, one of my favorite devices in my life is the iPad, right? I, I think I'm on my sixth generation of iPad. I love these things. Um, I love all of the ways that we can be connected. Um, I love FaceTime, and now who knew what Zoom could be in our lives. Um, I love that, that somewhere all the documents that I've made in my life are on some cloud somewhere. I don't know what that means, but I know I don't have floppy disks anymore, and I know that they're just there. 
As a professor, there's a program called Prezi that I like to use um, to do all my lectures on because it moves and does all these cool things, but mostly because I can go somewhere and I can just log onto a computer. I don't have to carry stuff with me. I can just log on and I can pick my lecture and I can just go with it. And all of that is great until one time I had to go to LA to teach a doctor of ministry seminar for five days. I had to lecture for eight hours for five days. And I had put everything on Prezi and I was ready to go. And when I got there, it was summertime at the university and they were upgrading all of the internet system and something chaotic was happening that day and it was all down and I'm desperately trying to log on and they're saying, sorry, we may not have Wi-Fi access for the whole day. And I'm like, that isn't possible, right? Like this is not, I can't do that. And finally about, you know, two hours of trying to fake it, I thought, man, is there a chalkboard in this room anywhere? Like, uh, but so when I spoke to these teenagers, I decided this would be the title of the sermon. I am the Wi-Fi, you are the iPad. <laughs> Apart from me, you are a very expensive calculator, right? Like that's, maybe, maybe we non-agrarian types, we can think of, of our connectivity these days and what happens to us when that connectivity is down. And suddenly all those things that we feel like we were made to do, we cannot do because we're not connected. And so we affirm we were made for connection to God and to each other. But we also affirm a second thing, that we were created to bear good fruit. That we were created um, not for self and not to, to just simply bear fruit for ourselves. But we were intended, we were created to be connected to the vine and bear fruit that is part of the, the purpose of the vineyard. Again, oftentimes in our culture, we are kind of pushed to believe that, that we are kind of born, um, philosophers would say this, we exist, but we don't have an essence. Now we get to kind of go figure out or make up what that essence is. In many ways, we're gathered here today because we are confessing we have to be connected to the vine, but we also confess, actually as creatures, we were created with an essence, and part of what we're here today is try to figure out what is that purpose? What is the good fruit of the kingdom? What is that good fruit of the new creation? What is that good fruit that looks like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control? What is that fruit that we were created to bear? And the more that we can live into that, the more we discover the goodness of what it means to be who we were created to be. And the more we discover the purposefulness of life and the more we discover the meaning that life has by, in a sense, giving ourselves away to the vine and to the vine's purpose. And so we were created for connection to God, and we were created to bear good fruit. The third affirmation out of the text is this. We are open to receiving. This one's a little longer, so hang in there. We are open to receiving and reinterpreting our difficulties as opportunities for the gardener to prune our lives for greater purposefulness. We are open to receiving and reinterpreting our difficulties as opportunities for the gardener to prune our lives for greater purposefulness. So much of the text has to do with the gardener comes along and cares for the vine and the branches. And one of the things that the gardener does is the gardener removes dead branches. I think Jesus intends us to hear that as though there may be times in our lives where we get disconnected and part of the pain we feel in our lives is when things are not the way they are supposed to be and there is a pruning that happens in our lives and it's not painful and it's not easy but it's the consequence of our own disconnection and moving away from our purposes. But I would want to say also that there are times when 
the challenging, difficult circumstances of our lives become opportunities for us to participate in a kind of pruning that will bring about more fruit. So again, I'm not agrarian at hardly any level. Um, But when we lived in Pasadena uh, this last time, we lived for a number of years in a house that we, there's a lot of things about it we miss. Uh, We don't miss the house so much. We had a great yard. It was a very Southern California house. In fact, we joked that we had a yard with a house attached, right? but it was cool, it was kind of up on the mountain, and, and the, the best part about it, even though I'm not very agrarian and certainly do not have a green thumb, but the house had these beautiful rose bushes in the front of them. I mean, this is Pasadena, right? The city of roses, you have to grow roses. And the people who had owned the house before us had planted all these amazing rose bushes, and twice a year they would bloom and flourish and be beautiful. And then in the backyard, it was this great backyard with kind of three terraces and pool and pool house, all that kind of cool stuff. But we had trees and really cool trees. We had trees that grew grapefruit and oranges and we had a big kumquat bush and we had two or three avocado trees, which were so much fun because they would fall and the bears would come down off the mountain and eat them. And we would stand inside and go, there's a bear in our backyard. Um, It was really fun. Um, But knowing nothing about that, Debbie learned a lot and she became really good at all of that kind of stuff. But we didn't know anything, so we hired Gus, and Gus knew everything. And Gus and his team would come and take care of everything, and we loved Gus. Gus was great. Well, we would have parties, and part of the reason we loved the house was because we could have people over all the time. And in our backyard, we could have two, 300 people for dinner in our backyard. It was so much fun. And it's almost always nice in Southern California. But sometimes our schedule and Gus's schedule would be off a little bit. So I remember one time, we didn't know that manure week was coming right? And we had planned a big dinner in our backyard, and it was just a little more flavorful um, because we didn't realize it was manure week um, for the yard. But um, you guys may not understand that because every day is manure. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Certain parts of the valley, uh, yeah. But we came home, we were having this big party, and man, the roses looked beautiful, and there was so much grapefruit and oranges and everything. We were so excited to have this party. And we got home, and it was, it was, it was prune everything week. And we showed up, and the roses were all gone. And Gus and his team had come, and, and they had pruned all the rose bushes, but I didn't understand. I thought pruning rose bushes meant like cutting a couple of the dead flowers off. They had come and destroyed our rose bushes. They were not rose bushes. They were thorny sticks sticking out of the ground. And then we got to the backyard and they trimmed all the trees and almost all the fruit was gone and almost all the green branches were gone. It looked like someone had just totally devastated the trees. And we're like, oh, this party has no shade now, by the way. But also, um, what have we done, right? And so we just thought, Gus has lost his mind. It took us a year or two to realize Gus has not lost his mind. He knows exactly what he's doing. Then in pruning those bushes and those trees, as some of you know and are already thinking, oh, silly pastor, like roses grow into themselves, right? And the problem is a rose bush grows fast, but it will grow and block its own sunlight. And so in order to have the kinds of roses you want, you have to prune it and really prune it. 
in order for, and sure enough, Gus was right, in just a few weeks, the roses began to bloom again, and they were beautiful and amazing, and the fruit trees came back, and we had more grapefruit than we could eat, and orange juice we could squeeze, and more kumquats our friend Julie could make jam out of, and, and more avocados than the bears could eat. Um, but there are times when we go through real difficulties, and we, Wesleyan types, I think, because we believe so deeply in the sovereignty of God's love, may not say that these things happen because God wants to do these things, but perhaps some of the difficulties, and I even feel like even the difficulties of these last few months, if we're open to it, have become opportunities for God to prune our own lives, to say these were unimportant things. Um, sometimes I'll just say, even in community, there are times where it feels like there's a pruning that happens to us in community. Um, and sometimes when, as, when you're leading that community, you wonder, um, God, are we doing the wrong things and killing the bush? Or is there a sense in which there are good things going on in order for those good things to flourish, there's a pruning that has to happen for us even together in community? And so we come and affirm that, right? We are here to affirm. What Jesus says in John 15 is absolutely true. Apart from him, we do not have life. So we were created for connection to him. We were created to, to bear good fruit for the kingdom. And then we were created for the gardener to care for and to make sure that our lives continually flourish. And sometimes that is not an easy experience. But thanks be to God, when we look to him and are called according to his purposes... God can bring goodness even out of the difficult things that feel like the pruning of our lives. But now if you'll turn with me to the Acts text. So the Acts text is really fascinating today. And I am, I'm fascinated with, by the way, the reason why the lectionary committee hundreds of years ago, whoever they were, when they got together and decided, let's put these texts together for these Sundays. I have to say, I think the lectionary committee got a kick out of this Sunday. So as we talk about this text, I have to apologize ahead of time. There's no way to talk about this text without being a little bit funny. When Jonah was little, every once in a while, he would want to talk about things that you don't really want to talk about regularly. But he would say this to us. He would say, is it okay for us to have potty talk? And we would say, not right now. <laughs> We're in the middle of dinner with guests. Um, but sometimes he'd say, can we have potty talk? And we'd say, yeah, okay, this is the time we can have kind of potty talk. And so this morning I'd say, we have to have some earthy talk here. Is it okay if we have some earthy talk? Because when the committee got together, they did this amazing thing. Like, I'm sure they picked the gospel text first and said, oh, yeah, this is a good week for us to talk about the vine and the branches. And we didn't read it today, but if you go to the epistle text, um, the epistle text for the last several weeks have been coming through 1 John. And today is 1 John 1, and it's about abiding in him and abiding in the love, which fits so well with the vine and the psalm text fit well for today. But I just have this picture of the lectionary committee sitting there and on the papyrus or whatever they were using, on the, on the whiteboard, are all these Acts texts. And they say, what Acts text would fit with the pruning of the vine? And some of you won't find this funny, but it is really funny. <laughs> One, somebody in the committee said, we should use the Ethiopian eunuch for today. <laughs> it's about being cut off, right? Like, um, and I know they went, awesome, go with it. Um, so anyway, I was teasing Heather, Pastor Heather and Pastor Chelsea this week about the coloring sheets for today for the children. But... Um, 
But the Acts text is fascinating. Philip has had to flee. Stephen was martyred. And many of the disciples had to flee then Jerusalem. Philip goes to Samaria and begins to convert Samaritans, which is radical, but they're kind of quasi-Jewish. So it's out of bounds, but not super out of bounds. But the Spirit of God comes to Philip, and there's much we could talk about here, about the Spirit guiding us and all of us who have kind of stories about being in the right place at the right time, kind of those moments where you go, oh, this was a divine appointment from God. But Philip is one of those divine appointments. He finds himself in the desert and he encounters an Ethiopian eunuch who is coming from Jerusalem and is going back to Ethiopia. And the two important parts, and there's really just kind of one sentence where Luke describes him, but it's very descriptive. He is an Ethiopian eunuch. Now, first of all, it would be shocking for a first century person like Philip to encounter an Ethiopian. That like for us, would be like meeting a Martian. Um, somebody from another complete part of the world and encountering this person with all of this garb and all of this unfamiliar kind of cultural baggage. He encounters this Ethiopian who is a eunuch. Now, there may be a number of reasons why this man um, had become a eunuch. It is most likely that this man had been captured at some point by the kingdom of Ethiopia and probably given a choice. Do you want to die? (laughs) Or do you want to become a eunuch so that you cannot bear children and none of your people will continue to exist within our kingdom? We'll just take your stuff. We want your stuff, but not you. But if you want to live... We can give you a purpose and a job, but here's the thing. You cannot have life after you. You cannot flourish. You cannot bear children. And so you can live long enough to have some purpose for us, but once you're used up, it's over. Are you with me? Now, fascinating, he's a God-fearer. Somehow he has been connected to the Jewish God. And he must have some means because he bought a Torah scroll. He bought an Isaiah scroll. And he has come to Jerusalem, and although the text doesn't say it, we can probably infer, given what we know from places like Deuteronomy, the 23rd chapter, and I'm not going to read that text to you, but you only have to read the first verse of, I think it's Deuteronomy 23, yeah. I'm not going to read it today because sometimes, as I've said before, the common English Bible is too common in, in in its English. But Deuteronomy 23 basically says a person who is a eunuch cannot come into worship. They cannot come into the temple. There's probably lots of reasons for that. Um, Part of that probably has to do with a view that sees the eunuch as unholy, this act that has been put upon him as a curse from God. But it's hard for us, and I I need you to kind of reimagine for a moment back about a century or two, But for most of human history, we could even read it at the beginning of Genesis when God creates Adam and Eve and then says, be fruitful, which is part of the text, right? Be fruitful and multiply. Have kids. That part of the way you build up a people, especially in the ancient world, where you're so concerned about your economy, where you're so concerned about having somebody to defend you, you need more people. And so part of the 
part of what you add to us as a people in the ancient world is you have children, and that's the way you add to our community. And so the problem for the eunuch is the eunuch takes up space and brings nothing to us. Are you following me? And so he is excluded from participation in the people of God. Let me say for a moment, there is something really um, good, and there's part of me that would like to recapture some of what I just talked about. Um, For I do think our understanding of marriage, for example, works best, flourishes, if we understand marriage and the desire to have children as not simply self-driven or a fulfillment of our own desire, but as moving towards some other kind of purpose. And so I do think there's something really cool when, um, when a couple feels drawn by God to spend their life together that they come to the church and we show up with toasters and blenders and gift cards to Target and we say, yeah, we're totally in this. We think God has brought you together. And I do think there's something really beautiful about if it's God's will that there are children born to them and then they show up here, right? Like, like we did just a couple of weeks ago with Drew and Lara. Then they show up and say, listen, you gave us permission. Look what happened, right? Help. And there's a sense in which the church is not only saying we're going to help, but there's a way in which the church says, yes, we got one more. They're part of us, right? This has been a fun week for our family. Um, some of you know Caleb got ordained on Friday. And I think actually we'll be in the atrium, he and Mel in the atrium, if you want to say, congratulations, way to go, reverend. Um, (laughs) But part of that for us, as you can imagine, was very emotional this week. Um, He'll also graduate next week with his Master of Divinity degree, so it's it's Caleb week, Um, except that it's Sophie's birthday. Happy birthday, sis. But there's something really cool about those of us in this room who who can point to a godly heritage, right? And so I couldn't help but think about Harold and Edith and Melvin and Claudine, my grandparents, um, who in so many ways in our family were Abraham and Sarah, who just kind of journeyed with God. And and I've shared with you before, it's just so odd in our family, my mom and dad and all my aunts and uncles, um, I often call them, I call Harold and Edith and Melvin and Claudine, the Abraham and Sarah generation. I, I think of the, the generation right above me as Isaac. If you ever read the Genesis narrative, Abraham and Sarah are really exciting. Isaac's kind of boring. Um, we waited for him for a long time, but he just kind of seems to live into the promise. And it was just so interesting how that generation just kind of followed into ministry, their parents. And I joke with my cousins, we're the, we're the Jacob generation. Um, I'm even limping today. Um, now, we're the ones, we kind of struggled with it, but in the end, the nine of us in that third generation all love the Lord, all involved in the church. About two-thirds of us, I think, have pursued ordination. But also that, it's always about the Joseph generation, right? And so it's beautiful to see our kids love Jesus and begin to discover what that means to live and to carry that forward. There's, I have to tell you, there's something beautiful about that. And I, I hope it just continues and flourishes. 
And I love a kind of multi-generational church. There's something great about that. And so there's a part of me that gets the challenge here. What does the eunuch bring to the, to the people of God? But as Philip discovers the eunuch, he discovers that he's reading this text from Isaiah, Isaiah 53. And the text is surrounded by three questions. And we could really wrestle with each of these questions for a long time. I promise not to do it. But the first question is this. Philip says, do you have any idea what you're reading? Do you understand what you're reading? Which is a very important question. Sometimes I want to ask my students, that's great. Do you have any idea what you've just read? The radicalness of it? Do you understand what's happening in this text about the suffering servant that you're reading? And then the the Ethiopian then asks a question. Well, about this text... Is the prophet speaking about themselves or are they speaking about somebody else? To which then Philip goes, oh, I'm so glad you asked me that question. Here's my sermon. I have a Prezi presentation for you. Um, oh, yes, let me tell you not only about the suffering of Israel and their people, but let me tell you how Jesus embodied that and carried that forward to the cross and went to the places of abandonment and shame and entered into forsakenness for our sake. But God raised him on the third day, and now there's no place called God forsaken. There's no place called God abandoned. None are left out. But now in the power of the resurrection, in fact, the power of the Spirit that led me to this road to encounter you, Jesus is on the loose, making all things new. And by the way, this is so cool. Hang with me. If you would just go, if if the Ethiopian eunuch would just read three more chapters ahead to Isaiah 56, he would encounter these words. Don't let the immigrant who has joined with the Lord say, the Lord will exclude me from the people. And don't let the eunuch say, I'm just a dry tree. The Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, choose what I desire and remain loyal to my covenant. In my temple courts, I will give them a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give to them an enduring name that won't be removed. Oh, that's so fun. That's so exciting. Philip's able to say, listen. Yes, not only is that about Jesus, but now there is a power at work. And here's how the early church embodied it. Now, because of this work that's at, the spirit that's at work, now there's an opportunity for people to be single in the body of Christ. Now, you weren't excited about that, but hang on here. Jesus and Paul were single. How can you be fruitful and be single? Well, because in the new creation, Jesus can say these things. Who are my mother and my brothers? These people are my mother and my brothers. In this new creation, fruitfulness gets totally redefined. So it's not just limited to having children and increasing our number. It is about a community in which the love of God has been poured out and is multiplied in our midst. And all of a sudden, we're able to love each other and deal with each other as family. So for Paul and Jesus, the radicalness is not giving up sexual intimacy. The radicalness is giving up heirs. Truly, every time I read a letter of Paul and it starts this way, to my dearly loved children, I always think he means that. His children are the Ephesians. His children are the Galatians. He doesn't want to admit it, but his children are the Corinthians. (laughs) Everybody has those kids. Um, 
beauty of the body of Christ is now fruitfulness is not defined even generationally having children who walk in the, in the light of the Lord, as rich and beautiful as that is. Now our life is defined by the ways that we care for each other and have been engrafted into a body together. Even the eunuch. In his isolation and barrenness has been incorporated Thanks be to the Jesus who meets him there and brings him in. But here's the last question. So he gets all excited. Philip's just preached him a really good sermon, and he asks this question. Hey, well, here's water. What is to keep me from being baptized? Please don't miss the radicalness of that question. I think we sometimes downplay baptism as just a kind of ceremony that's nice to do. The eunuch is asking Philip, that's nice, but here's water. What's to keep me from putting to death my old life and coming to this new life in him? And what's to keep you and I from becoming then brothers in Christ? What's to keep us from being family? Now hang with me. Because here's the craziest part of the eunuch story. Jesus, in his ministry, encountered a number of people who could not participate in temple worship. Um, Perhaps they had leprosy or a skin disease. Perhaps they were blind or handicapped or lame or mute, there were things that excluded them. Whenever Jesus encountered them, you know what he did. He healed them and then said, go to the temple, right? Like, go. So whatever that barrier was, that kept them from being included, Jesus removed because he healed them. Here's the problem. There's nothing that points to the idea that when the eunuch comes out of the water, he's healed. The eunuch goes into the water, a eunuch, and comes out of the water, a eunuch. The leper who's been healed doesn't violate the law because they're no longer a leper. The the eunuch can't stop violating the law. So when he asked Philip, what's to keep me from being baptized? Philip should have said, well, about eight texts in the Old Testament. There are a ton of reasons why why you can continue to fear God, but why you can't be included with us. And understand this. This is before Paul's conversion. This is before Peter meets Cornelius. This is before they have the Jerusalem council to decide if it's okay for God to do what God is doing. (laughs) Philip is a radical. For somehow Philip understands something that happened in Jesus means that the eunuch can be part of the family and remain a eunuch. 
and be connected to the vine and find a life of fruitfulness. And so my fourth affirmation today is this. We affirm that our inclusion onto the vine is not dependent upon our abilities to be fruitful in our own strength, but is solely in response to the grace of God that empowers our life to have meaning and purpose in Jesus. And that was good. I only got an amen out of my mother, so I'm saying it again. We affirm that our inclusion onto the vine is not dependent upon our abilities to be fruitful in our own strength, but is solely in response to the grace of God that empowers our lives to have meaning and purpose in Christ. That is good news for those who feel like I have nothing to contribute because of my past, because of what has happened. I don't even know if I have hope to be completely different. But it's also an invitation for us as the church to discover the radical posture of the grace of God. Let me close with this before we gather around the table. I, um, I got asked to speak at a denominational uh, conference a few years ago about who we are theologically. And I think one of the cool things about Nazarenes, um, it's a short list, but one of the cool things about us is that we really didn't start because we got angry and left somebody. A few of the folks did. But, but we were really people kind of with a lot of differences who decided, but we, one thing we cared about was the holy life. And so we gathered together and kind of worked out our differences and tried to find ways to kind of create a tent big enough, literally, for all those folks to fit in. And so I told a story, I've told it to you before, and again, I don't know if it's true because I heard it from a pastor, but it's a story about a, a farmer from California who wins a contest and gets to go study farming and ranching practices in New Zealand. And at the end of it, when they ask him, what did you learn? They say, he said, oh, all sorts of things, but I really noticed, especially in your sheep herding, it's very different than us in California. He said, you know, sheep are dumb, and so we have really high-tech electric fences to keep the sheep in. But I noticed you don't have many fences. Like you have a rock wall here to keep the sheep from going off a cliff or entering into the forest. But for the most part, you do sheep herding without fences. How do you do that? And they responded, well, we learned generations ago that if you, real, if you dig really deep wells and you have really good water, that the sheep will love that water and thirst for that water and they will not wander very far from the wells and you won't need as many fences. I was online a couple weeks ago in one of those places that distract me from doing real work and um, kind of a pastor conversation. And there was a conversation that had started um, that asked this question. How far can you go till you're no longer a Christian? Or what can you believe and then until you're not a Christian anymore? Or what can you believe until you're kicked out of the Nazarenes? So I got distracted by it. I started reading all the thread, but, but I got angry at it at first. And I have to tell you why. Because it was really a dishonest question. It wasn't being asked out of curiosity. It was being asked to set a trap for people who would get on there and say the wrong thing. Because the spirit of it is very much put there by gatekeepers who really have spent their imagination trying to figure out where all the fences should be and who's in and who's out. And at first it made me really mad. But then a couple of days later, the sanctification part kicked in. And I stopped getting mad and I started getting sad. 
sad for those whose imaginations are always about where to build the fences rather than their delight in digging wells. For I want to be more like Philip who encounters the eunuch and the eunuch says, here's water, what should keep me? Ah, there's the long list. But a posture that is able to say, oh, Ethiopian, come, drink from the well of Christ. See what Christ can do. See what fruitfulness your life might bear as you are connected to the vine. Come dig the wells of Christ. I'm convinced that we were created for connection to God. We were created to bear fruit. And sometimes in our life, we experience some pruning. Thanks be to God. But I also am convinced that there are those that God wants to connect to the vine and the branches don't get to push them out. But thanks be to God that we are all engrafted in. And so this morning we come around the table to not just affirm those things, but to embody them. So as we come with bread and cup, we recognize We cannot live apart from the source of grace and mercy in life. We cannot live apart from Jesus. We ask to come around a table in which we are so grateful that we got included. And we're so anxious to encounter those who are not yet here, but for whom Christ has made a space to come to experience the fruitfulness that comes with connection to Jesus. God, help us today um, as we participate in this meal. Uh, Take these elements, uh, we pray, make them a means of grace to us. Make them what we eat today. Make, Make us the body of Christ. And as we eat them, may the grace that has welcomed us, may that also be the grace that then postures us for the sake of a world, maybe even a faraway world that needs you. May we not be the thing that prevents all the Ethiopian eunuchs in our world from entering the water. But teach us how to embody the grace that Philip so beautifully embodies in this text. Make us the body of Christ, we pray. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.